Hello, and welcome to this week's Taurus Chaim podcast. My name is Elchanan Cohen, and this is my wife, Miriam Cohen. And as we do every week on the Taurus Chaim podcast, we try and take a look at the Torah portion of the week to see if we can extract from it meaningful life lessons, which is the concept of Taurus Chaim, instructions for living, the literal translation of that phrase, but also to see if we can take some of what uh, happens to us in our daily lives or what is happening in the world around us and see if we can gain a deeper understanding of the text. Oh, before we start, um, I would like to ask that if you are enjoying the Taurus Chaim podcast, which if you're here, I like to think that you are, you help us spread the word. Uh, we appreciate if you give us a rating or a review on your favorite podcast platform. You can also um, share a link on social media. And best of all, you can discuss what we've what we talk about at your Shabbos table. You can tell your friends and family where you learned what you discussed, and hopefully they will come and learn too. Okay. And in that vein, um, I just want to mention there was a very serious error in last week's podcast. Um, and I'm very grateful to a listener from Israel who reached out and corrected me. Um, and that is in last week's po- podcast, I said that um, later on in Parshas Vayakhel, when the Mishkan is repeated, that the order is reversed in terms of the order of the Kalim of the vessels. Uh, in last week's parsha, it started with the Aron and ended with the Mizbeach. And what I said at the time was that in Vayakhel, it starts with the Mizbeach and ends with the Aron, and that is incorrect. Uh, the reversal in Vayakhel, there is a reversal, which the Gemara in Brachos does mention, but the reversal there is merely the fact that building the actual structure of the Mishkan and the um, the beams and the coverings that created the actual structure of the Mishkan. In last week's Parsha, it is mentioned after the discussion of the Kalim, of the different vessels, whereas in Parsha's Fayakhel, it is mentioned before. So that is the reversal. And I appreciate very much the person who reached out. Uh, It's a good reminder that I am more than fallible. Um, And uh, you mean there's things that you forget sometimes? Uh, more than sometimes. Um, <laughs> Compared to you, your wife, you don't forget anything. You more than most would probably know. Um, and, um, you know, and if you notice any other errors, uh, please feel free to reach out to us. Um, part of the reason for that error is I was getting lost in another idea. Um, and I want to actually maybe spend a little bit of time in the beginning of this week's podcast doing something we don't usually do, and that is looking at things from the macro rather than the micro perspective. I think oftentimes we get stuck in the first several psukim of the Parsha, um, and uh, we don't tend not to get very much very farther beyond that. But I think there's an important point or ideas, numerous ideas, that can be gleaned from kind of taking a step back and looking perhaps at the Parsha, the weekly Parsha as a whole, but also at kind of its relationship to the previous week and to the weeks after. And here's what I mean by that. We have discussed this once before, but 
typically, um, a Torah portion begins with a new paragraph on a new line. So we discussed this in the context, if I remember correctly, of Parshas Vayetze and Parshas Vayechi. Um, it's very difficult to get this sense when you're using perhaps the Art Scroll Chomish or a Mikros Gedolos, you know, Chomish with a lot of commentary or something like that. It's hard to get this. But um, one way you can do this, there are two ways that you can do this. One is to get yourself what's known as a Tikkun Korim, which is basically a safer that is designed for those who read from the Torah. And so therefore it is set up to look graphically like the way that the Torah actually right. does. Or, um, and no, I am not hired by them, but this is a shout out to them. If you t- get the Koren Tanakh, mm-hmm. um, it is also laid out in this way. Um, and recently, Machon Simanim uh, also put out a Tanakh kind of fashioned in this way. Um, and that will kind of help you see what I'm talking about over here. So what I'm saying is this. Normally, a new Parsha, meaning, again, uh, as we mentioned then, the word Parsha is a little bit of a misnomer, because the word Parsha really means paragraph. Right. Right? And really what we read on a weekly basis is the Sidra, or the order of paragraphs of that week. But we're just going to use the word Parsha the way that it's used colloquially to mean the weekly Torah portion. So normally, a new Parsha begins not only with a new paragraph, but also on a new line. So as we've mentioned before, there are two types of paragraph breaks in the Torah. There are paragraph breaks. Stuma and I forgot. Suchos and stumos. Okay. Um, so there are paragraph breaks where Is there's just. Vayete? Yes, we discussed it in Parshas Vayete. We discussed, discussed it in Parshas Vayechi. See, I listen. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, so. Often I listen twice, once when we recorded and then. I go back and listen while I'm cooking for Shabbos. Um, so uh, there are two types of paragraph breaks. Sometimes there's just merely a, an indentation, kind of a space in the Torah. And the next paragraph begins on the same line, but there's a space. And sometimes there's you end a paragraph and start only on the next line for your new paragraph, um, for your new Parsha. Now, usually the... Parsha, the, the weekly Torah portion, begins on a new line. This week, it does not. And we discussed this a little bit in the context of Parsha's Vayetz and Parsha's Vayichi, as was mentioned, why that would be the case. But it is interesting to note that these two Parshios, Parsha's Teruma and Parsha's Tetzave, mm-hmm. are very often, not this year because it is a leap year, but are very often read together as right. one okay. Parsha. And it kind of makes sense when you look at it in that way. Therefore, it makes sense that Parshas Titzave would not begin on a new line, because in a way, it's really just the second half of Parshas Truma of last week's Torah portion. We happen to take a break between the two halves, you know, in during a leap year, because we need a little extra for the added number of Shabbases. But that would, you know, that would explain something. Um, And when you keep that in mind, the beginning of this week's Parsha makes a whole lot more sense because it kind of jumps in in the middle of a sentence. Okay. 
It says, And you should command the Jewish people. Now, usually you, ex- you would expect a Parsha to begin something like, Hashem al Moshe, Right? Hashem told Moshe and etc. But it doesn't. It kind of just jumps in almost in the middle of a sentence. And the, the reason for that would be because um, you find that it is really, in a way, connected and a second half of the previous Parsha. Um, The same is true, uh, incidentally, for uh, Parsha's Pikude, right? So there's another set of double Parshios, right, that would typically be be coming up, Vayakal Pikude. Again, this year being that we have a leap year, they'll be separated. Can I ask a mostly unrelated question? Let me just finish the idea. Sure. So in Parshas Vayakal and Pikude, again, Parshas Pikude does not begin with a new paragraph. It begins with, well, it begins with a new paragraph, but not on a new line, because those two are kind of two halves of a single thing. Yeah. So Vayakal Pikude and Trimatitzava. Mm-hmm. What are the other two that we Double Parshios? Yeah. Tazria Mitzorah and Acharemos Kedoshim. And then... Tazria Mitzorah, the one that's like only if, like the last one that you join? Because I feel like... No. Um, and then if you're not in Israel, you also have Matos Masai. Gets doubled up. Um, whereas uh, in Israel, it does not. Uh, depends on the on the particular year, but right, yeah. right. Okay. Oftentimes it's Thank doubled you. up outside of of Eretz Yisrael, but not in. Okay, so uh, that's that's one point. And the reason I point this out, in addition to understanding kind of why we jump in in the middle of of the conversation right at the beginning of this week's parsha, is also to understand that there is a certain continuity between the information of last week's Parsha and the information in this week's Parsha, right? right. In, in fact, when you look at it this way, there's actually something quite jarring uh, that you notice. You can also notice it other ways as well. That happens at the very end of this week's Parsha. So if I asked you, for example, right, what's the difference between Parsha's Truma and Parsha's Tetzave? I know. I don't know. It wasn't popular to be taught in (laughs) Basak. So when we were learning it in school, or or actually, you know, as as your brother mentioned, you know, uh, these year uh, this year is particularly difficult for teachers because you know there's no storyline here, and so usually you have Pesach to get ready for at this point. Though apparently, some people are already already. Got a guest this past Shabbos who we were was a. Kids. Right, she mentioned um, we that were, in school they're busy getting ready for Pesach already, and they hadn't learned Parshas Truma. <laughs> right, um, so yeah, so it, it does get a little difficult to teach these because there's no storyline. But you may remember that Parshas Truma focuses on the Mishkan, on the Kalim, what the Mishkan itself was made out of, what the vessels inside of the Mishkan were made out of. Whereas Parshas Titzava focuses mostly. This is how it's typically seen mostly on the big day kahuna, the, the okay. clothing that the Kohanim wore, specifically the clothing that the Kohen Gadol, that the high priest wore, right? Okay. Uh, that's usually how the two are kind of seen as two separate entities until you get to the very end of this week's Parsha. Um, and all of a sudden, and we discussed this actually at the Shabbos table, all of a sudden something that you would have assumed would be in last week's Parsha 
appears right here in this week's Parsha. Right? So in last week's Parsha, we have a list of all of the different vessels that are in the Mishkan, right? The Aron, the Shulchan, the Menorah, the Mizbeach HaZahav, the Mizbeach HaNechoshes, right? Mm -hmm. All of those are listed. But there's one, oh, sorry, I actually said something that wasn't listed. There's <laughs> one that's conspicuously absent. Now, as was mentioned at the Shabbos table, the kior is also missing, but that's a different discussion because the kior is not really used. The kior is not really used to perform any of the actual avoda in the Beis HaMikdash. It's used to prepare for performing that avoda. Right? So the kior was the laver. That's usually how it's translated into English. Not that that means anything no. to most people, but it was essentially a giant water cooler. Not so much a cooler, but from which the Kohanim would wash their hands and feet to prepare themselves for doing the avoda. Right? And in fact, uh, this is one of the sources for a minhag. There are different opinions as to whether this is a minhag or a halachic requirement um, to wash your hands before each of the tfilos that we do, shachris, mincha, etc., because just as the Kohen, when getting ready for the avoda, would wash his hands, so too you should. And in fact, if you look in Shulchan Aruch, this is one of the explanations given for why we wash our hands every morning. We view ourselves as a Kohen beginning his avoda, so to speak. Every Jew sees themselves as working in the Beis HaMikdash, in the temple that is their life. Um, That's a powerful and, image. It's a thing and we wash our hands ready. to get ready in the morning. Um, but So that's actually only going to be mentioned in Parshas Kisisa. But there is another uh, Kli, another one of the vessels, that is conspicuously absent from last week's Parsha, and that is the Mizbeach HaZahav. The golden altar. So there are two mizbechos. There are two altars, right, in the Mishkan. There's the mizbeach hanechoshes, the copper mizbeach, um, or maybe bronze would be the better term. Um, not our discussion right now. Okay. Um, do you know the difference between copper and bronze? Oh, I'm not as smart as you. <laughs> um, okay. Um, Something with alloys? Yeah. So okay. I, I know a little bit. Um, so... Um, Let's, let's call it copper. Um, so the copper mizbeach was mm -hmm. the one that was in the courtyard and the one on which the korbanos, the sacrifices, were brought. Right. right? The golden mizbeach, the mizbeach hazahav, was the one that was in the mishkan, in the actual building of the mishkan, and on which the ketores, right, the incense, was mm -hmm. sacrificed. Right? Yeah. On a daily basis. And you would have expected that in last week's Parsha, which discusses all of the different vessels used in the Avoda, right, used in daily worship in or daily service in the Mishkan, it would appear. But it doesn't. It actually appears at the end of this week's Parsha. Okay. Um, and so, again, getting that macro view can kind of point, helps you to notice certain things that uh, you if you were zoomed in, you might not notice quite as much. And the truth is... Maybe next year we'll do the macro view of the Parsha instead of the micro view. <laughs> and the truth is that um, the, it's not my question. The Sephorno and others 
ask this question. And Sforno actually gives quite an interesting, um, I think, beautiful answer. Um, and he says that uh, the Mizbeach, the golden Mizbeach, the golden altar on which the Ketoris was offered, he said, think of it like, you know, how when they're trying to sell a house, they bake cookies so that it smells homey. You're familiar with this? Yes. This is a realtor's trick, right? Yes. So the Mizbeach only comes into place after everything else is completed. After the house is all set up, so to speak. The house here being the Mishkan, right. right? And everything is in place, including the people who are meant to be working there. Then we bring in the Mizbeach and we, you know, make that fresh linen scent or fresh cookie scent or <laughs> or new car smell or whatever you want to refer to it as. That's the Sephorno's approach to 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 that. Uh, not our discussion for right now, but there is a, um, a deep connection between the menorah, which is discussed at the beginning of this week's Parsha, and the Ketoras, which is what is discussed there at the end of the Parsha in the context of the Mizbeach. Um, and for those who are interested, I would highly suggest Rabbeinu Bachai's introduction as he does for each parsha, he has an introduction to Parsha's Tetzave, where he quotes the Pasuk in Mishle, Shemen Uketores Yisamach Lev, that it is oil and ketores together that make the heart happy. Obviously, there's some sort of a connection. And here I thought between, it was chocolate and peanut butter. <laughs> some sort of a connection between the two. The other thing I want to point out to you is that there is another part of this week's Parsha that is, again, when you zoom out and take a look from that macro perspective, um, the Parsha does not only discuss the begadim, mm -hmm. right? The clothing that the Kohen Gadol wore. There's the second half of the Parsha discusses the actual, what's known as the meluim, the process of inauguration that turned the Kohanim into Kohanim. Allow me to explain. We're so used to this idea of the Kohen is the one who serves in the Beis HaMikdash. Right? But as you may have learned in, in school, that was not originally the way it was meant to be. And in fact, according to some, based on the Arizal, that is not necessarily the way it is going to be when Mashiach comes. What? Exclusive. I married a coin for nothing? <laughs> exclusively. It will okay. not exclusively be that way when Mashiach comes. Okay. If you look back in Parshas Mishpatim, when the Torah, at the end of Parshas Mishpatim, the Torah, we discussed this a little bit last week, describes this covenantal ceremony, right? The Sefer Habris that Moshe writes, right? So it says that Vaishlach es na'are b'nei Yisrael, that Moshe sent the Na'are would be usually translated as the youth, the lads of the of the Jewish people. Vayalu olos vayizbechu shlamim, and they brought zvachim shlamim. They brought korbanos, and that's actually the first time that we find that the people, that the Jewish people, are sacrificing any sort of korban in this sense. There was the korban Pesach, but the korban Pesach was something very different. It wasn't sacrificed on any sort of altar. Okay. Um, and 
who are those Na'arei B'nai Israel? So Rashi on the spot, actually, based on the matter, says it was the Bechoros, or Bechorim, actually, <laughs> right? The, it I was, know enough tic <laughs> Yes. So um, if you take a look at Rashi there, you'll see he says Bechoros. Oh, really? Um, yeah, because it's, oh, it, that's, just, that <laughs> that's just the, the, the term that's used. It's kind of, it's one of those terms that oh, can like be used. Oh, Makas Bechoros. Exactly. Were the, the women, were the actual oldest girls? Oldest girls? Did they die in Makas Bechoros? I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I have to I have to look into that. Um, I mean, the the minhag is definitely that for Tainus Bechoros, um, the fast before Pesach, right. that even girls what fast should fast. Really, I didn't know that. I mean, in my ha- in my family, it's a boy, so right. maybe it wasn't like. Um, I have to look into that. Um, okay. <clears throat> on, on the other hand, right, um, only a male bechor is considered a bechor, meaning the the the. Mm, that seems a little unfair. That the halachos, fast, but they don't get the. <laughs> the halachos of bechor, right? Meaning the halachos of you know having to redeem. The firstborn son from the Kohen, etc. That only applies to a male firstborn son. But okay. Well, obviously, if he's a son, he's male. But all right. Be that as it may. So that was the Bechorim who were doing it. That was the Bechorim who were doing it there. And and as is explained, originally, the Avoda, the service was meant to be done by the Bechor. Right? And you may remember this, for example, from when you learned Berchus Yaakov, Right, the brachos that Yaakov gave to his children, right? Reuven Bechoriata, right? Yasser Seis Vyasar Az, which as Rashi explains, Reuven, as the Bechor, you deserved to have both Malchus to be the king, but also Kahuna. And you lost both of them. Right? But Kiel either way. Yes. See, I remember some things. <laughs> um, either way, it was meant to be the Bechorim. When did the Bechorim lose the Avoda? When did it switch over to be Levi? Not really until next week's Parsha. Oh. Because it okay. was by the Egel, right? When the Jews worshipped the golden calf, the Levian were the ones who stood up when Moshe called for volunteers. Mi la Hashem Eli, right? That famous... Right. famous line, right? It was the Levium who stood up, and as a result, they were given the Bechorah. But, all of a sudden, right here in this week's Parsha, we find who is the one who is lighting the menorah right in the beginning? It doesn't say Bechor, it says Aaron Uvanav. Okay. okay. So, just want to point out, the chronology is a little confusing. And as we discussed last week, there are different opinions in the Rishonim, in the commentaries, as to whether this took place before or after the, chronologically, before or after the golden calf. Okay. Um, But either way, they needed to go through a miluim, an inaugural ceremony, to turn them into koanim. Actually, it's interesting um, in English, the word to invest somebody um, has a double meaning. Well, I mean, it, it can mean to 
put vestitures, meaning to put clothing on the person, but it can also, you can, you, you can have someone to be, to be investitured is to be inaugurated into a job. So it's interesting that the two are very much related. I must confess, it is not a word that I use frequently. (laughs) Um, Both are combined here in this week's Parsha. Um, But there's another thing that appears at the end of this week's Parsha that seems totally out of place. And that is, well, first of all, the whole Miluim process, the whole description of the inaugural ceremony mm-hmm. almost sounds like something that belongs in Parsha's Vayik- in Sefer Vayikra, right? So in Vayikra, that's where we talk about all the different types of korbanos. And in fact, it is almost repeated word for word in Parsha Shmini, where it describes yeah. Moshe actually doing this process. Okay. You know, it's interesting. Um, I think we might have mentioned this once, but... Um, there is one particular type of trope, type of cantillation that appears only shalshelas. Right, that appears only four times in the entire Torah. The shalshelas, three times it's in Bereshis, and the fourth time is actually in Parsha Shmini, in Vayikra. But people think it should be here in this week's Parsha because they get mixed up between the two because they're so they're so uh, the same or so similar. Um, not our discussion right now, but the reason it appears there is because that's where Moshe actually uh, carries out the Miluim, and the Shalshelis always implies some sort of inner conflict. And of course, Moshe, who was meant to be the Kohen Gadol originally, um, but lost that when he decided to argue with God for too long in whether or not. I didn't know that. Arona Chicha Halevi, right? Mm-hmm. So Rashi, there, there are comments that it was, it, you, Hashem was telling him, listen, you were really supposed to be the Kohen Gadol. And in fact, Moshe did function as the Kohen Gadol for the Shivasi Meimeluim for these seven days of the inaugural ceremony. And but, then he passed it on. And then he passed the baton on to Aaron. But okay, not so much our discussion right now. But. I understand why it might come into this week's Parsha in the sense of, well, it's part of this whole idea of the Kohanim. And if you think about it, Parsha's Titzaveh is really about the Kohanim. That's what the Parsha as a whole is about, right? Last week's Parsha was about the Mishkan. This week's Parsha is about the Kohanim, those who serve in the Mishkan, right? However, there is a paragraph that appears in this week's Parsha that seems completely out of place. And that is the Korban Tamid, all of a sudden, is mentioned in this week's Parsha. Okay. Right. And? And again, you would have assumed that's something that would be discussed in Sefer Vayikra. Right? It's a Korban, right? And all of the, in fact, we refer to, you know, the the entirety of Sefer Vayikra as Torah Kohanim. The instructions for how the Kohanim do their service, and right? our listeners know what you know Torah used in that in that context. Precisely, and in fact, if you look throughout the Torah, um, the word Torah is almost always used in the context of korbanos. Okay. Um, so, um, why would that appear all of a sudden in this week's parsha? 
Um, and what's interesting is that the Torah kind of supplies us with a little bit of an answer, right, in Parshas Pinchas. Okay. Because in Parshas Pinchas, the Torah refers to the Korban Tamid as Olas Tamid, the daily Ola offering, Ha'asuya Behar Sinai, that was performed on Mount Sinai. Really? Where does it say that the Korban Tamid was done on Mount Sinai? That, what I mentioned before, in Parshas Mishpatim, when it says, Vaya'alu Olos Vayizbechu Shlamim, they were starting the Korban Tamid process. They brought the first Korban Tamid. That's why it appears in this week's Parsha, because the Kohanim in sort of supplanting or replacing the Bechorim mm-hmm. have to do this Olas Tamid thing that the Bechorim did in Parsha's Mishpatim. And so that's why it's mentioned here. Granted, they're going to do all of the other Korbanos as well, but that's not our discussion right now. Right now, our discussion is their investiture or their becoming Kohanim. And by the way, with that in mind, um, I'm going to skip the first couple psukim and point something out to you. If you take a look at um, Pasuk, Parak Chavchas Pasuk Aleph, right? So shortly after the beginning of the Parsha, chapter 28, verse 1, it says, Bring close to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons, mitoch b'nei Yisrael, draw them out from among the other Jews, separate them, l'cha hanoli, that they become kohanim to me. Who are these people? Aharon, Nadav, va'avihu, Elazar, v'itamar b'nei Aaron. Aaron, Nadav, avihu, Elazar, and Itamar. Who's missing? I can't remember. There's someone who's missing. Take a look back in Parshas Va'era, and in the beginning of Parshas Va'era, you'll notice when it discusses the genealogy of Moshe and Aaron and their families, it mentions that one of Aaron's, the Elazar ben Aaron, Elazar, Aaron's son, Lakachlomi benos Putiel, took one of the daughters of Putiel, Loli Isha, Vatilad lo es Pinchas. She bore for him a child, Pinchas, right? Okay. Where's Pinchas? I don't know. So, amazingly, Pinchas was actually not originally supposed to be a Kohen. Why not? Because the Kahuna was given initially to Aaron and his sons. Pinchas is a grandson. It would continue with any children they would have from that point on. But Pinchas was actually not going to be a Kohen. And it's only later on in Parsha's Pinchas, when Pinchas, in the end of the Parsha before that, does what he does, which we'll have to discuss at a different opportunity, he is then given Kahuna. So Pinchas represents to us the person who is able to turn himself into into a Kohen. Wow. Right? Okay, but... I feel like, you know, we've gone very macro here, and I just wanted to kind of give a little bit of of a sense, because I feel like we oftentimes get very, very micro and, and granular and, and such. Um, but the pro- one of the problems with this very macro view is you'll notice that we haven't really mentioned very much Torah's Chaim. 
Right. We haven't mentioned very much instructions for living. And that's because when you're looking at the ma macro, it's a lot harder to apply it right. to the day to day. And this was a discussion that we had like after the first week. I don't know if you remember, but I asked you like, don't you want to try to cover the whole parsha? Basically right. asking you to do a macro view and you said it, it fit your the idea of this podcast is that you could really look at any Pasuk and and find lessons and find insights. And so right. that's uh, why we've done the micro. Right, absolutely. Um, okay, so let's go back to our micro in-depth per, um, perspective. Um, to, be, to be perfectly honest, part of the reason why I did that is I did not feel properly prepared for this week, um, as we were discussing before. I'm not sure why, but... Um, these past two weeks, um, this was true last week as well, I haven't felt like um, I have what to say. Do you think really it's the content of the Parsha the, that makes it tricky? Uh, possibly, at the micro level. Um, at the macro level, it's, it, it, it's a lot easier. So let's, yeah. let's, let's um, hopefully, um, God will bless me with some sort of an insight. And so you, Moshe, who is being spoken to, Remember, we're jumping in right in the middle of, of, mm -hmm. of the conversation here. It says, You should command the Jewish people, and they should take for you shemen zayis zach, pure olive oil, kasis lama or, that has been crushed or pressed for light, lahalos ner tamid, to bring up a constant lamp or light. In other words, there is meant to be a light lit in the Ohel Moed, in the, that's the other term the Torah uses for the Mishkan, the Ohel Moed, the Tent of Meeting, and they're actually different terms. They're used somewhat interchangeably, but they have very different connotations, not our discussion right now, but there is meant to be a light lit there. Why? So, as the Gemara asks, we, we need some form of illumination in the Mishkan. We had the Amud Ha'esh. We had the pillar of fire traveling throughout the desert that provided us with all the illumination that we needed. That's quite the extraordinary uh, picture. Right? Well, so, why did they need a menorah? Clearly, the purpose of the menorah is not for light in terms of illumination, but rather it's there as some sort of other component. And I'd like to make two suggestions. One is what the Gemara then continues and says, well, take a look at the next Pasuk. It says, in the outside of the parochas, right? The parochas was the curtain that separated between the Kodesh HaKadashim, the Sanctum Sanctorum, Right, the inner, the Kodesh Hakadosh, the Holy of Holies, where the Aron was, and the other part of the building of the Mishkan, the Kodesh, where the other vessels were. So outside of the Parochas, a Sher Al Haidus, that if you think about it, the Parochas kind of separates or stands in front of the Aron, which is the Edus. Inside of the Aron is the Luchos, which testify to the giving of the Torah on Har Sinai. And that's one way to read the verse. However, the, the Gemara understands it as al-ha'idus, the light is there as testimony. 
It was testimony to everybody that the Shechina is resting in the Jewish people. Right? Meaning, well, uh, Rashi understands it in his commentary on the Gemara, the fact that, as we know, there was a miracle that occurred that one of the camps, one of the lamps, excuse me, the Ner Ma'aravi, the westernmost candle, right, lit beyond all the others, even though it had the same amount of oil as everything else. It continued to burn. That was a miracle. That miracle is testimony to God's presence, right? But there's another component to it, and that is that the menorah is there in a similar way to the Ketores. It's there, think about your Shabbos candles, right? Your Shabbos candles are not there for light, I mean, halakhically, they may re- need to be there for light, right? right? But there's actually a whole fascinating halakhic discussion about lighting Shabbos candles today in the current age when, when have we have light. artificial lighting. And there are some who were of the opinion that you should actually turn the lights out in your house and turn them back on before lighting candles with the intent that that is also part of your candle lighting. However, there are those who disagree, and I'd like to suggest a reason. This is not my own. They, some mention this, and that is that the candles are not per se there for light. They're there for a candlelit dinner. Interesting. Right? Like for a can- in order for there to be a candlelit dinner, yeah, it might be a lot nicer if the lights are out and all you have is the candlelight. But even if the lights are on, the fact that there are candles lit Makes, makes something nicer. nicer, right? And in a similar way, the menorah being lit, it's not there for illumination, but it's there to turn it into a candlelit ceremony. Very interesting. Right. And that's the edus. That is the testimony, right? Because it indicates the intimacy between the Jewish people and God. You only have a candlelit meal with someone who you're very close to, Right. Mm-hmm. You don't share. <laughs> you don't share candlelit min- meals with your business partner, right? No. Not. So that is the edus. That is the testimony to God's presence. Is the fact that there was a menorah lit, right? Um, and that is its function. With that in mind, I'd like to suggest what this Pasuk is doing here. Because again, if you think about it and take a step back from the macro perspective, mm-hmm. why is this here? Right? I, don't know. I mean, the Torah here doesn't discuss all the other components that go into the daily Avodah, like, you know, the Korbanos and, and the Menachos that were brought, the flower offerings that were brought, and, right. and, and the wine library. It doesn't, it only mentions the menorah. Okay. And I believe it's because the Torah is focusing in on two, one at the beginning and one at the end of the Parsha, two components of the Avodah, of the daily service, that are there not as part of the service itself, but as an accompaniment to the service, as a way of making it nicer. And they are the light. And what's the other thing that you would put on the table if you were having a nice, fancy dinner? Flowers? Flowers. What's special about flowers? Scent. Right. They smell nice. Right? And so that's the kitores, 
that is brought as well, right? And that's why it appears in this week's Parsha. Right? Such a powerful thought, the idea of like almost, I know romantic seems weird in this sense, but it's almost like a, ro- a romantic. It doesn't at all seem weird in this sense. Be, and, and allow me to explain, okay. right? On the on Yom Kippur, the holiest of days, right? the Kohen Gadol, the holiest of people, so to speak, goes into the Kodesh HaKadashim, the Holy of Holies. And what does he do there? He burns Ketores, he burns incense, right? And if you look in both in Sefer Malachim and in Sefer Divrei Hayamim, the Kodesh HaKadashim is referred to as Chadar Hamitos, the bedroom. Wow. Right? Because yeah, it I guess is... romantic is not an awkward no, word No, romantic here. is not at all an awkward use, word to use here. Right? And yes, I think one of the messages and one of those Torah Chaim points to extract from this week's Parsha is that we need to understand that our relationship with God is not one of a business partnership, but one of a romantic relationship. Right? I, I guess it's hard for me to like put those two together. Would you say like a close personal relationship is a way of understanding it in well, a human <laughs> It's actually really interesting. Um, Rabbi Yaakov Weinberg was the once introduced as the man who could answer any question. Okay. Um, at a Q&A session. And the first question that he was asked, he said, I don't know to answer. What was the question? The question was, why do men make the bracha shaloh asani uh, isha? That I was not made a woman. Isn't that misogynistic? Okay. And he said, I don't know. I believe he knew, because I, I can think of some answers to the question. I, I think he was trying to make the point that he is not the man who can answer any question. Be that as it may, right? There's a fascinating um, phenomenon in Judaism mm-hmm. that Jew, that men have more mitzvahs than women do. Right. Right? And um, this is oftentimes... in taken as an indication to the misogynistic nature of Judaism, or at least the uh, male-centric nature of Judaism. And as you mentioned it just before, the Bechor, right? Right. Only for men. One reason that I understand as to why that is the case is because in terms of our relationship with God, is God the man or the woman in the relationship? The men? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Why? So take a look at Shir Hashirim, for example. Oh, okay. In Shir Hashirim, who's who's the who's the groom? God. Who's the bride? Jewish people. We are the right. bride. Right. So in order to practice being the woman in the relationship, for men it's a lot more difficult than it is for women. Very so therefore they have that many more mitzvahs to put them into that framework or context than women do. That's my understanding of the of the idea. Um, so it's interesting that you should mention that it's 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 awkward for you, um, you know, in in that context. Um, but um, yeah, our relationship with Hashem, with God, is one of a intimate one. Um, sure, it can it, you can describe it as a friendship. In fact, if you look throughout Shi'ar Shirim, there are different terms that are used. Ra'ayasi, my friend. Achosi, right. my sister. Right? But also, 
my beloved, right, is also used, right? Um, then again, we refer to husband and wife as friends. Right. Right? Reim ahuvim, beloved friends. Plus, sometimes I call you bud. Yes, sometimes you call me bud. <laughs> um, and, and there are different components to a relationship between husband and wife. There is a friendship component to it, right? Right. Um, and then there are other components to right. it. Yeah. Okay. Yaroch also, continuing in that same verse, Yaroch also, Aaron, Uvanav, Aaron and his children should arrange the menorah and have it lit from evening until morning. So the light was there seemingly from during the nighttime only, though there is some discussion in the Rishonim whether it was lit during the daytime as well. Lifnei mm-hmm. Hashem, before Hashem. Chukas Olam, an everlasting um, uh, instruction or um, statute, rule. Lidorosim for all their generations. Me'es b'nei Yisrael, from the Jewish people. And by the way, I have no idea what that last phrase means. Oh. I wasn't expecting to hear that. <laughs> okay. What does that mean? May Ace B'nai Yisrael? I don't know. I don't know. Are the Jewish people are the people who give them this instruction? Are there, are there Mepharshim that talk about it? I haven't found anyone. So if anyone can point, point me in the right direction, I would greatly appreciate it. But um, I, I really don't know how to translate that final phrase. Um... Notice, let's take a look back at that first Pasuk, because I think there's some important Torah Chaim mm-hmm. that we can extract from it. Notice that the oil that is used for the menorah needs to be Shemen Zayis Zach, pure olive oil, Kasis or that is crushed or pressed with the intent for light. That's the simple way to read the verse, Lama Or. Even though there are others who, Rashi, including Rashi, who say that Lama Or means that this is only true for menorah oil, not for other oil. For example, there was oil that was that was put in the menachos, in the meal offerings, the flower offerings, the flower, F-L-O-U-R, right? Um, that did not have to be pure and and or as pure as the light that was used for the menorah. Right? So Lama Or in that case would mean if you're using it for light. But the, I think the simplest reading of the Pasuk, of the verse, is that it should be done for that purpose. Kasis Lama Or. And it should be crushed for light. And I think there's something very important that the Torah is teaching us here. And that is, we understand right, that light here is an analogy for something. Right. right? And of course, throughout Torah... Light is always an analogy for Torah itself or for wisdom, right? Kiner mitzvah v'Torah or a mitzvah is a lamp, and Torah is the light, right? I've definitely learned that in my time. So, light, or we even use this term in English to be enlightened, right? Is to gain wisdom, right? For right? Sure. And 
I think the Torah is telling us something about the nature of wisdom and wisdom gathering. Okay. And that is that when it comes to wisdom or when it comes to Torah, it's very important that it be done for the correct purpose, that it be done lama'or, for the purpose of gaining light. And the truth is, the Gemara has a whole long discussion about this, whether a person should study Torah even if their intent is not for the right one, right? Even if their intent is for other purposes. And, and the truth is, the Gemara actually says, well, it depends. What's the conclusion? It depends. What is your ulterior motive? If your ulterior motive is to be a wise guy, right, and to argue with people, right, or to be, um, uh, to lord it over people with your wisdom, then actually it's better that you didn't. However, if your intent is for some other ulterior motive, like, uh, I don't know, you want to become a teacher, <laughs> right? Or um, you're enjoying it. Right? Well, that's actually what I was wondering about, like, if you learn Torah because you enjoy it and not because you're trying to... So this is a whole very interesting discussion. Um, not so much our discussion right now, but simply understood, if you study Torah because you enjoy it, that is considered lishma for its purpose. Oh, okay. Right? However, oh. however, um, it is not the ultimate in Torah study. That's for sure. Um, okay. And as, as I once heard from Rabbi Yaakov Weinberg, the explanation for what it means that the Gemara says, how come Talmidei Chachamim, sages, oftentimes don't have children who are necessarily sages? Shouldn't you expect their children to be sages? The Gemara says because they don't make a bracha on their learning in the before study, which is a kind of a strange yeah. um, answer. Right. Um, but the Gemara, it, the, the understanding as, as it is developed by the Bach and by others is essentially that they don't view their Torah study in the context of a relationship with God. They're just doing it because it's so beautiful and enjoyable to the study. The children of the Talmud. No, the Talmud de Chacham. Oh, so it's almost like a negative that... Yes. So one of the kind of, I guess, the way he put it, one of the dangers, so to speak, of Torah study is that it's so beautiful and so sweet and so enjoyable that sometimes the, you could lose the forest for the trees, right? right? And and forget that ultimately the purpose of Torah is Torah Chaim, is instructions for living, is right. about building that relationship with God. Wow. That is definitely a very powerful and appreciated uh, insight. Okay, um, so let's wrap it up, if you insist, <laughs> and take a look at what it is that we have uncovered or discovered this week. Mm -hmm. We spent the first little while this week kind of taking a more macro view of mm -hmm. things, um, and I think that that's important um, not to as we just mentioned, to not to lose the forest for the trees, right? you know, um, and to be able to see things in a, in a different context. As such, we noticed the strange phenomenon of the Mizbeah Hazav, the golden altar being mentioned at the end of this week's Parsha. Right. We gave one answer or one explanation that it's kind of there as a culmination 
of the construction. But the other explanation that we gave after examining the beginning of the Parsha was that this Parsha is about the nature of avoda, of the service in the temple, as being forging the relationship between us and God. And so therefore it has those two components of the menorah, the candlelitness, so to speak. That's not a real word, but <laughs> being candlelit, right? And the ketores, the incense, the beautiful smells and the beautiful sights um, that come along with it, right? And we also discussed a little bit about the nature of the avoda, of the actual service, how originally it was meant to be done by the bachor. It was meant to be done by um, the firstborn, and it was the Levium or Kohanim who took over that job. And so, I have a question that I just thought of. If so, you said that Moshe lost it because he argued with God. Mm-hmm. So, my question is: Had he not lost it, all Levium would serve as Kohanim in the Beis Hamikdash? If Moshe had not lost it? Yeah. Um, no, I think it would have been Moshe and his family rather than Aaron and his family who were Kohen. So I would not be the daughter and the wife of a Kohen in that case. Correct. I would just be a distant cousin. <laughs> you would be a lady. There's nothing wrong with being a lady, but... <laughs> um, and I, I'd like to end with a, a story. Um, I, I don't remember who it was, but it was someone who was a student of the Chafetz Chaim. Um, who came in once to the Chafetz Chaim. I think it was the Chafetz Chaim. I'm having a hard time remembering this story right now. Um, yeah. And he was taking leave. He was going home from yeshiva. right? Mm-hmm. And the Chafetz Chaim asked him, as he was kind of getting permission, he said, you know, how come I'm a Kohen and you're not? As you may know, the Chafetz Chaim was a Kohen. Right. And the student was very confused. Right? What do you mean? How come you're a coin and mm-hmm. I'm not? Because your father was a coin. It's right. like the joke about the guy who comes to the rabbi, right? And he says, Rabbi, can yeah. you make me a coin? And, and he says, well, Why do you want to become a coin? Because my father was a coin and his father was a coin, <laughs> right? So you want to know, you want to know why you're a coin and I'm not? Because your father was a coin and, and right. my father was not. So he's very confused. And after. A little while, the Chavetz Chaim explained to him, he said, because my great-great-grandfather, when Moshe made the announcement and said, who's going to stand up for, for God? He listened and he stood up, whereas your great-grandfather didn't. The message being, as we saw with Pinchas, to a certain degree, all of us can choose to become Kohanim. Some of us are born to greatness. Others have great, no. Um, <laughs> some of us are born Kohanim, but in a way, we can all choose to be Kohanim. And if you think about it, that's really what Pinchas did. When there was an opportunity, something that demanded a response, he stood up and responded to it. And um, I think that that's the other, perhaps, lesson that we can take from this week's Parsha, from the whole idea of becoming Kohanim, is this idea that to be a Kohen, to be the servant of God. And as we discussed several weeks ago, we are mamlaches kohanim, right? right? We are a nation of kohanim. Is to be a servant of God, to be the kohen, to be the priest, is to, when there is a need, to stand up on his behalf, so to speak, Mm -hmm. right? When you see a need to respond, to go ahead and respond, to take that action. 
And in fact, what Chazal note about Kohanim is that Kohanim Zrizimheim. Kohanim are, well, usually the word Zrizus is, is translated as alacrity, speed. Mm-hmm. But the better translation of that term is Kohanim are proactive. When they see a need, they take care of it. Which has its downsides. It's why we Kohanim tend to be angry folk. Because we tend to kind of be excited about... Yeah, it's actually not just a stereotype, it's a halacha. The the get that a Kohen has to write is written, if he's getting divorced, is different than the get that any other person would have to write in order to kind of give him time to reconsider. Now, obviously, there there are other considerations there as well. The fact right. that you know a Cohen cannot remarry. Should a Cohen get divorced, he cannot remarry his wife. Right. Right. right? Whereas true. any other person could, assuming she hadn't married someone else in the meantime. Right. Um, so the idea being, just to finish off with, on that note, if we see a need, if we have the opportunity to stand up, and I think it's something we're seeing more and more of in the world that we live in today. We have the opportunity to stand up and speak up on behalf of God and on behalf of his people. It is our responsibility and also our opportunity to do that and to act as Kohanim to the world at large and Kohanim in our nation. Wow. Thank you so much.